NASCAR may force the taste of Chicago from its longtime Grant Park home. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about local housing news, including the story of a Jazz Age co-op on Lakeshore Drive, once owned by a federal judge. So we walked in and, you know, you're in this nice wood paneled library, beautiful stone fireplace. And she said, look at this. She goes over to the corner and where it just looks like paneling, it turns out that it opens up to reveal a hidden bar. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, March 9th. Your business isn't an afterthought, so why would you settle for a bank that treats you like one? At Wintrust, small business clients are matched with a personal relationship manager who offers customized solutions and prioritizes their needs. And that personal touch works. Last year, Wintrust lent the most to Illinois small businesses through SBA loans, making them the number one SBA lender in the state. Start expecting more from your bank. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash SBA lending. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. All right. So as ever, many things to dig into. Let's start by talking about a short-lived interest rate dip that might have spawned a little bit of a spike in home sales. Tell me about this. Yeah. You know, this was a very interesting thing to see. I look at weekly data that's released by Midwest Real Estate Data every Monday at noon, For the prior week, it's uh, homes that went under contract, various other things, and the number of homes closed. Uh, The most recent Monday was the 6th of March, which is the end of February, beginning of March. And at that time, every month, there are more homes closed than the weeks before because, you know, everybody was getting stuff done at the end of the month. But it was considerably larger a jump. Um, for this past week, sales were up, uh, closings were up more than 100%. It was more than double what it had been the week before. More typically, it's like 15, 20%. So what's going on? It wasn't just the end of the month. So I started talking to real estate agents and they pointed out that if you track backward about six weeks, which is often what it takes to get something closed, six, seven, eight weeks, um, you see that interest rates went up about, I'm sorry, interest rates went down about that time. And um, we so, you know, we spent about 11 years with interest rates below 5 percent in 2022. They started rising, rose to nearly 7 percent, came down, started 2023 at about 6.6 percent and then dropped about four tenths of a percent. This, This all sounds very technical, but there's a reason to say so. Then turned and went back up. Well, when they were dropped it, when they dropped down, um, to about 6.1%, apparently, people decided, I got to get my deal done. I got to make my purchase because interest rates have come down. So what's notable about this is that there was this downturn and, and like people came flooding out the doors. Um, one of the real estate agents I s- spoke to said, yeah, you know, we saw an immediate response with more foot traffic, more offers, uh, because people are so rate sensitive now. Now, there are a couple of reasons. One, of course, we, uh, as, as I said, we had low rates for such a long period and then they went up. So people, and, but the other thing is we talk so much about interest rates 
in part um, because there are people like me covering real estate a lot more than there were a generation ago, but also because, um, you know, we went through this long period, near 11 years of very low interest rates. And, and that ended with the last couple of years of a major housing boom. Federal Reserve raised interest rates in large part to cut off inflation, including the inflation of home prices. So we're all very aware of interest rates and the fact that they, when rising last year, chased me out of the housing market. So I see them coming down and I think, oh, I better jump back in. Um, But again, interest rates did turn and go back up after that. So uh, we may not see um, that rise in the number of closings continue forward. We'll be, I'll be watching that for the next few weeks. But there was, it was like an econ lesson, right? I mean, interest rates went down and people started buying again very quickly. Talk to me about downtown condos that are, maybe there's uh, something going on with the pricing there too. You know, this, this is a problem that has plagued downtown Chicago for years, for, especially since, especially in the last few years before the pandemic and then during the pandemic, Condos just not selling at a profit. Condos often selling um, in 2020 for a 2008 price, that sort of thing. Um, and we thought as uh, there was a rebound after COVID that prices would go back up. But uh, in January and February, I found a large number of condos selling January, February 2023 for 2006, 2005, 2001 prices or lower than those prices. Um, and it was, so the data was difficult because I, could, I couldn't get a previous price on every condo, but for the condos where I could get their current and their past sale price, the majority went for years ago prices, went for 10 and more years ago. And this is just one of those things that, um, you know, it's, it's been going on for so long now that it's kind of a reality And so I asked one agent, you know, what do you say to people when they're getting ready to sell a condo and you know they're going to sell it at a loss? And he said, well, you know, just like their stockbroker, I say this investment didn't work out. Um, And so I'm sure people will say a lot of people will want to jump in and say one of the reasons is crime. It's not just crime, but it is. But that's a big one. It's also downtown hasn't rebounded the cultural uh, the cultural venues haven't rebounded as expected. Not as many people going back to work on as many days as was expected. Downtown, not only downtown Chicago, downtowns of big cities are still struggling a couple of years later. And it is also crime and the perception of crime, which often is much worse than the actual crime rate in Chicago, as we know. So uh, we're seeing sort of a pattern of um downtown condos selling at a considerable loss. I feel like that's such a kind of self-reinforcing cycle. What kind of starts to break that? Uh, A massive revival of downtown, a a feeling that Chicago, that downtown Chicago has become again what we thought it was going to be in the early 2000s, that it feels safe again, that we're all going downtown five days a week. Um, Those would be two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which those things might be a ways off, especially, you know, the way that the nature of work has changed and the nature of being in an office. That might be a while. Interesting. Oh, and I forgot to say, and I would like to toss in, I, I did find comparison data for other big cities that have a big downtown condo population, Philadelphia, Seattle, and we're right at about the middle Okay, for price growth over the course of, of the past several years. A lot of others have been 
a, a few others have been flat as well. Some have skyrocketed. I think the one where home uh, condo values had gone up the most, I think was Seattle. And, you know, Seattle is everybody's dream and it's a booming housing market. Chicago uh, feels a little bit different right now. Well, we'll have to revisit that one and see if that starts to shift. Gosh, there's a bunch of houses I want to talk about, but in particular, talk to me about this first new house on the block where Emmett Till lived that has sold. Yes. Uh, We talked about it when it came on the market. First new single family home built on the block where Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till, lived in the 1950s. First new house, first new single family home built there since the year before he was murdered. He was murdered in 1955. Most people know on a summer visit to relatives in Mississippi, he was black. He was killed by white people and his body brutalized. When it was brought back here, his mother, Mamie, wanted the um, casket left open at his funeral in order for people to see, as she said, what they've done to my baby. One of the catalysts for the civil rights movement. And as you know, their former home, a two-flat later turned into a three-flat owned by the family, um, is now being turned into a museum. But there are a lot of vacant lots on that block. There's been a lot of disinvestment in the area. And so several months ago, I wrote about a builder who was putting up, uh, he had three lots and he was going to put up two single-family homes and not sure what the third would be. Now he has sold the first single family home for $515,000, which is quite a price for Westwood Lawn. Uh, He has the second one under, uh, he has not yet started the second one, but he's getting ready to break ground on it. And the third um, may be a multi-flat instead of a single family home. But he had said to me, you know, I'm really glad to be helping bring back this historic block. So here are people buying for half a million dollars a home on the block where Emmett Till lived before he was killed. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there was movement to landmark that house and and some talk about museum, you know, space and all of that. Where where does all that stand? All that's going on. It got landmarked. It was bought by uh, the group Blacks and Green who planned to create a museum, not only a museum to, to Emmett Till and that aspect of the civil rights movement, but also about the Great Migration. Emmett Till was part of a family that had migrated up from Mississippi. So it would be a, um, a museum dedicated to all those stories. I think they've had some events, but will open full scale sometime in the next year or so. We'll have to revisit that when that happens, when it's officially open uh, full scale, as you said. All right. Talk to me about a, uh, a Gold Coast co-op that has a hidden bar. This is on the market for the first time since 1945. This is a really fascinating place. This is one of those. Can I just say, I'm so glad. I think I've said this already. I'm so glad to be going into the properties again during COVID. Yeah. I spent most of my time talking to people about their homes by phone and that kind of took a lot of the fun out of my job because part of the fun is getting to go to a place like this, a co-op on Lakeshore Drive, 1500 Lakeshore Drive, which really is sort of, if not the handsomest, one of the handsomest jazz age co-ops in the city designed by a New York architect who did all sorts of fabulosity on uh, Central Park in New York. And then he's brought in in 1929 by some wealthy families in Chicago to build a super fabulous building. Um, That's in 1929. In 1945, a federal judge and his wife named, their last name was Igo, Michael and Ruth Igo, bought this unit. Um, We don't know for how much. The family lore says they bought it for the price of a used car. 
It may have been lost by the uh, first owner in the Depression. Don't know that for sure either. But most of its 1929 finishes were still there in 1945. And most of them are still there today in 2023. I walked through. It is amazing. There are, we'll get to the bar, but there are in the kitchen, there are these 1920s refrigerators that basically look like lockers, but with glass doors um, built in. Those are still there. They also have a modern day refrigerator, but they kept the old ones. When you walk into the foyer, I like the sort of astronomical theme because there are these eight pointed stars inlaid in the floor. And then overhead, there's this huge sunburst in the plaster. So I don't know that the idea was astronomy, but it sure looks like it. And then you go from there, there are a lot of very wonderful formal rooms, but one just off that foyer is the library. So I'm walking around with the granddaughter of the people who bought it in 1945. Her grandparents lived there from 45 till the 80s. Her parents lived there from the 80s until their recent deaths. And now she and her four uh, siblings are selling it. So we walked in and, you know, you're in this nice wood paneled library, beautiful stone fireplace. And she said, look at this. She goes over to the corner and where it just looks like paneling, it turns out that it opens up to reveal a hidden bar. There's this wonderful bar, looks very 1920s. It's gold and turquoise and it just looks so cool. And it's got one of those refrigeration units. And one of the things she pointed out is my grandfather was a federal judge. He bought this after prohibition was over. So it's not that this just this federal judge was was keeping liquor in that secret closet. So cool. So when you walk through this property, it looks like the grandeur of 1929 has been frozen in time, but it's also been modernized. As I said, they've got the, the current day refrigerator. It's got air conditioning. You're not walking through cobwebs. You know, the family has really taken uh, very good care of it over the years. And it looks just so cool, so formal. So 1920s, you've got these great, it's on Lakeshore Drive. So you've got these great views of the lake out all the windows. Uh, that would be the east side. On the west side, you look out over all the historical and new buildings on the Gold Coast. It's pretty cool. They're asking $1.3 million. Um, there have been units in that building sell for $5 million, or there has been a unit in that building sold for $5 million recently. This one's going to need some rehab. It's got, um, while it's got, you know, like a modern refrigerator, the kitchen hasn't been modernized in, um, in footprint. It's still a little sort of... Uh, misshapen kitchen that was designed, you, your servants were going to be working in there. And so you're probably going to want to move some walls. So they've priced it knowing that that's going to happen. But it was it was such a trip back in time and especially uh, to that bar. That's so neat. And how big of a bar are we talking about? Is it like a little, would you walk into that room? Um, it's, it's bigger than, it's a closet, but it's not like a big walk-in closet dressing room. It's um, I would say it was uh, thinking of an office cubicle. It's about a half the size of an office cubicle, all lined with barware and yeah. liquor bottles. It's very cool. And the colors, the, the gold paint on the walls, I would bet they have updated the paint. It's all fresh, but I would bet that color has been there for nearly a century. That's very cool. All right. So there's a, a Lake Geneva mansion that we have talked about. There's a few Lake Geneva mansions that we've talked about, but one in particular. Yeah, that's true. It sold not long ago, I think. October. Yeah. For 17 million. It is being torn down. It, yeah. As we speak, 
yeah, this is fascinating. So the property was known as Villa Hortensia because it was built, it's 20 acres on the lakefront in Lake Geneva. And anybody who's been up there knows, you know, as you circle the lake, you see all these grand old mansions. Oh, yeah. This is one of those that you will no longer see. It was built for um, Edward and Hortense Swift. Ed was the grandson of Gustavus Swift, who started the meatpacking empire. And so they built this estate called Villa Hortensia, 20 acres, beautiful big mansion, 1906, designed by Howard Van Doren Shaw, who did a lot of the country estates in Lake Forest and elsewhere. And, you know, you look from the house down this long cascade of lawn to the lake. It had been in one family's hands since the late 1990s. It apparently needed some update, wasn't in great shape when it was sold. They put it on the market in 2021 for about $20 million, $21 million. And then they sold it in October for $17 million. That's the second highest price uh, anybody has paid for a property in Lake Geneva. Right next door is the highest price, the former Driehaus mansion that went for $36 million. Uh, and we learned this week, I have to admit, my competition at the Tribune learned before I did, that the house is being torn down. In fact, all three houses on the property are being torn down. The main mansion is 12,000 square feet. That's the one that really got the name Villa Hortensia. But there were two other houses and a service building on the property, all being torn down. I spoke to the builder. He said there were three houses on the property. There will be three houses on the property. He didn't give me drawings or anything, but he said the buildings will look appropriate for the site. So I'm guessing sort of historical Cape Cod, as opposed to, you know, some big new contemporary carbuncle dropped on that lawn, which is very good news, especially for people who take the boat tour in the summer and look at all the mansions. If they, if there were some new monstrosity, that would be sad. Mm -hmm. Um, but check with me in a couple of years. We don't know that it doesn't turn into a monstrosity. Sure. He said it would be appropriate. $17 million to tear the houses down. You got 20 acres for that $17 million. We don't know what's being spent to build the houses, but you have to assume it would be multiple millions. I wasn't able to talk to the buyer, but the builder told me that rehabbing the main house would have been millions of dollars on its own. Um, what he told the Tribune is, is it would have been three times the cost of the land. He didn't say that to me, and I find that hard to believe. But pretty wild to think of a $17 million teardown. The only other one I know of that compares is on the lakefront in Winnetka, where Justin and Kristen Ishbia bought four mansions for almost $30 million. And as we understand it, they're going to tear down at least three. The fourth is the one that is the question mark that's causing all the controversy but but so they but that's not one house torn down that's three um yeah. or four that they've spent a total of almost 30 million on yeah that's i mean those are pretty shocking numbers that's a double I, take when you when i saw I, that headline i was like wait that's a lot for a teardown yeah you know it's funny when you do this job long enough i think it's like making donuts you know you can't taste donuts anymore right those numbers just roll right off my tongue <laughs> oh yeah somebody bought a 17 million dollar oh, 17 <laughs> whatever Oh, it's a Tuesday, whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, one more story that I want to talk about before I let you go, and that is uh, how the city is investing $25 million to back mortgages on the west and south sides. Tell me about this. Yeah, this is a very interesting project. So the, the city of Chicago has an investment pool. It has about a billion dollars in assets it manages. And um, what the city treasurer told me is, 
we should be investing Chicago taxpayers' dollars in Chicago taxpayers. Through a fund in New Jersey, um, she's going to invest $25 million. That's a very small percentage of a billion. It's less than a half of 1% of the total amount that the city invests. So it's not as if you know the city's gone into some crazy investment scheme. But uh, that $25 million will be invested in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the big mortgage backers, and directed to be spent or to be dispersed uh, into mortgages to buy single-family homes on the west and south sides. They're predominantly Black. The homeownership gap is huge. Um, the difference between the rate of Black homeownership and white homeownership is enormous. It's even bigger when you look at single-family homes as opposed to condos, two flats, et cetera. So what she's trying to do is direct these funds to go into lending uh, to people who will buy single-family homes in those neighborhoods. You know, homeownership stabilizes a neighborhood. Uh, and uh, so that's that's what she's after. She's She had, by the time we spoke, she had transferred about $7 million into that fund, but $25 million is headed there. And uh, the chief investment officer of the city told me that he thinks that will probably help fund at least 300 mortgages in those neighborhoods. Wow, that's significant. I think so. Yeah, 300 mortgages is, is quite a thing. You know, if it works and they invest more, we'll certainly be talking about it. But I think this is a story we will probably be discussing. It's one of so many efforts the city is making to enhance Black home ownership, enhance those neighborhoods where disinvestment happened for so long. Um, it will be interesting to see if, you know, of, if, of all of them, which ones work best and whether they're all sort of leaning on each other, supporting um, revitalization of those neighborhoods. Yeah, certainly. Well, yeah, we'll have to revisit that for sure. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? Well, one of the things I'm looking at is Brandon Johnson, one of the two mayoral candidates, has a lot of housing issues in his campaign statements. Mm. As we speak, I'm trying to get the details on all of those, including something we've talked about before, the mansion tax, the Bring Chicago Home um, increase in transfer taxes. It died under Mayor Lori Lightfoot. In his campaign materials, he says he definitely wants to bring that back. That's super interesting. Well, I will look forward to talking about that with you this time next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, seven restaurants have been added to Michelin's Chicago Guide. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Disparities in housing have widened over the last few years due to a conflux of factors, and Chicago is not immune to this national concern. On March 23rd, programming for Cranes Forum Live will include a panel of distinguished leaders to discuss the issues around affordable housing. Speakers include former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, Chicago Housing Commissioner Marissa Novara, and Jim Cunningham from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. You won't want to miss this important conversation. Cranes Forum Live will take place on March 23rd at the Old Post Office Building. Visit our website to reserve your seat now. To learn more, visit chicagobusiness.com events and look for Cranes Forum Live. This is the Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth.
The Lightfoot administration wants to move the taste of Chicago from Grant Park and schedule it the same weekend as the first NASCAR street race this summer, a scenario one alderman calls a, quote, nightmare for downtown residents. Cranes reporter Justin Lawrence noted that Alderman Brendan Riley of the 42nd Ward said he learned from officials associated with Navy Pier, but not the Lightfoot administration, that the mayor has proposed moving the taste to Polk Brothers Park near Navy Pier and holding the annual food event the weekend ahead of the 4th of July, which, as noted, is the same weekend as two NASCAR races in and around Grant Park on July 1st and July 2nd. Riley said the dueling events would create a, quote, traffic disaster. Crane's Ali Marotti previously reported that the taste of Chicago has shrunk in recent years and the focus has shifted from a central location downtown to multiple events throughout the city's neighborhoods. But Alderman Riley said any version of the event should not be forced to compete with the NASCAR race. Marathi also reported that the Taste of Chicago launched in 1980, bringing restaurants from around the city together downtown to showcase the diversity of the city's culinary scene. The city made the event virtual in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic and changed it into a series of community pop-up events in 2021. Last year, it brought back the festival's downtown portion but called the scaled-down event a bite-sized version. And a series of free events were held on three consecutive summer Saturdays in the Austin, Pullman, and Little Village neighborhoods. The taste barely broke even in 2010 and lost $1 million in 2011. Former Mayor Rahm Emanuel cut the event in half in 2012, and the next few years were a mix of profits and losses, according to Crane's reports from the time. Also, Cranes obtained the contract between NASCAR and the Chicago Park District last year that showed the racing company would have access to portions of Grant Park for 21 days prior and 10 days after the event to set up and take down the infrastructure needed to host two races, concerts, and a fan festival. But Block Club Chicago reported this week that the window had been extended 26 days before the race and 13 days afterward. Along with the annual Lollapalooza Music Festival set for August 3rd through 6th and other planned events, Grant Park could be at least partially closed to the public for 84 days from May 18th to August 13th, according to the reporting from Block Club. Lightfoot has defended the deal with NASCAR, saying it's structured so that as the event becomes more popular under the initial three-year contract, the Chicago Park District will stand to gain more revenue through ticket sales and an increase in one-time fees. United Airlines pilots are warning that contract negotiations are heading in the wrong direction. Crane's John Pletz reported that according to a message the leaders of the Airline Pilots Association, which represents United Pilots, sent to members late last week, negotiations were described as being not close, saying, quote, there's a very real disconnect between the pilots and company leadership. Management has gained misplaced confidence and misunderstanding regarding 14,000-plus pilots' expectations for the next tentative contract agreement. Crane's John Pletz reported that just under a week prior, the union struck a more optimistic tone, tweeting, quote, Our negotiating committee and United Airlines have made strides in improving reserve work rules, rig protections, and pilot schedule control. Pletz also noted that the airline said, quote, We are continuing to work with the Airline Pilots Association to reach an industry-leading labor agreement for our world-class aviators soon. United, which has been in negotiations with its pilots for more than a year, thought it would be the first among major carriers to reach a deal coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, according to reporting from Pletz. 
Instead, a move by rival American Airlines scuttled what looked like an agreement when it offered pilots more than United had proposed. Delta then trumped them both with an offer of a 34% pay increase over four years, and that deal was approved. A day later, United pilots responded with a message that hinted their relationship with management, which has been unusually good by historical standards, Pletz noted, is beginning to fray. Let's further noted in reporting that pilots across the industry, most of whom have not had pay raises since prior to the pandemic and before inflation skyrocketed, have grown impatient over contract negotiations. American Airlines, the second largest carrier at O'Hare, also is in the late stages of contract negotiations. It decided not to put a previous offer to a vote, but pilots and management are trying to wrap up a deal this month. And as previously also reported by Cranes, United CEO Scott Kirby made labor relations a focus of his growth strategy for United, both earlier in the pandemic and over the long term. An industry-wide squeeze on the supply of pilots, in part owing to the baby boomer retirement cliff that is projected to last several more years, that could keep low-cost carriers' expansion plans in check. But at United, as with other airlines, the biggest obstacle doesn't appear to be pay. Pletz also reported that pilots, especially those with less seniority, are looking for more scheduling flexibility. And those complaints aren't unlike those made by railroad workers who rejected 24 percent raises and were prepared to strike over work-life balance issues. The Illinois Department of Agriculture announced this week that it was extending the deadline for craft cannabis growers to open their businesses. Originally set for March 1st, the new deadline for 2021 license recipients is now February 1st of 2024, while 2022 license recipients must open by December 1st of next year. In a statement, the department acknowledged ongoing issues facing craft growers, saying the department, quote, has granted an operational extension to all craft grower license holders due to a number of factors, including ongoing COVID-19 impacts and supply chain issues. Craft grow operations in the state are allowed between 5,000 and 14,000 square feet of cultivation space. With additional space for offices, storage, and other uses, most craft growers will build a 25,000 square foot facility, employing about 20 to 40 people. Their facilities will likely cost about 5 to $10 million, compared with other retail shops that cost about three quarters of a million to $1.5 million each. The cannabis industry has seen its share of ups and downs in Illinois since cannabis was legalized in the state back in 2019. The state finally awarded the first round of licenses for retail locations last summer, but it also faced calls to loosen regulatory guidelines that made the process harder for some cannabis businesses. Michelin has added seven new restaurants to its Chicago Guide, a tease for the awarding of the coveted stars. Those stars, typically announced later in the spring, are considered the crown jewels of the restaurant industry. The restaurants that made the Chicago Guide are Avli on the Park, Indienne, Rue, Sueños, the Izakaya at Momotaro, Union, and Pompette. Crane's Ali Marotti noted in reporting that the Michelin guides were created more than a century ago by the French tire manufacturers and the seven restaurants added to Michelin's Chicago guide could end up receiving a star or land a spot on the Bib Gourmand list. She also reported that last year, 23 Chicago restaurants earned a Michelin star and 55 were on the Bib Gourmand list, which features restaurants the company says serves high-quality food and allows diners to get two courses and a glass of wine or dessert for about 40 bucks.
That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. Crane's Audio Studio presents... Four Star Stories. The Felonious Adventures of a Chicago Mole. You could drop me in any country in the world, I'll be a millionaire in six months. Anywhere. That's quite a statement. It's a fact. Yeah. John Thomas has stories, lots of them. But you have to ask, how much of what he says is real? Look, John is a narcissistic egomaniac. I mean, there's just no better way to describe him. I'm Albie Galoon, and when I began on the real estate beat at Cranes two decades ago, I began hearing the name John Thomas a lot. He's like a cat with nine lives. Thomas was making his name in Chicago real estate. He had a brash New York swagger and a 350-pound frame that got him noticed. Were you a good football player? I was, I used to bench 590 pounds. Come on. That's a fact. You've already one trip to prison by working as an informant for federal prosecutors. But Thomas managed to wind up behind bars anyway. Did that change his ways? He's the kind of guy where lawyers say, man, if this guy flew straight, he would really be something. These are the felonious adventures of a Chicago mole, told in four chapters. Some people just have the grift in them. They can't get it out of them. They were born with it. I mean, they were stealing penny candies when they were, you know, six years old. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Four Star Stories from Crane's Audio Studio. So I walk outside and there's 10 FBI agents wearing fucking blazers around my car. Like, oh my God, I dropped my <laughs> I said, what did I do this time? They said nothing. I said, can I go home? I said, today you can.